Welcome to the fifth episode of the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. As always, this podcast is based on the newsletter, What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan. And if you go to our Instagram, WHLW under dash Kurdistan, you can find a link to the newsletter. I am your host, I am Rajid Shwani, and this episode will be divided into two parts. The first part is news about Kurdistan, and that's all four parts of Kurdistan, plus international and non-region specific news. The second part is an interview with Kurdish activist Nadim Bariyar. Rojava. What's been happening there since last week? For the most part, things are very stable, relatively speaking. There haven't been much changes, and there might be some chance of stability. Reports from Rojava say that new military groups are being formed by the Russians to replace the YPG and protect the border with Turkey. These new groups will be formed of volunteers from the region, but the number and size of these groups so far is unknown. Also this week, six Russian military patrol vehicles traveled towards the M4 highway, which is a critical road and has been highly contested since the start of the invasion. That's all the news for Rojava. Like I said, things seem to be a bit more stable and news isn't as easy to find as it was in the previous few weeks. And hopefully this is going to lead to more peace. Now moving on to the KRG, South Kurdistan, or Iraqi Kurdistan. We start with Prime Minister Mesrur Barzani and his first 100 days in office. PM Barzani recently discussed his first 100 days in office. What was said? Basically, it was over 23 minutes of him talking about the problems that they've faced and the hardships they've had, whilst also the achievements they've made in terms of tackling corruption, transparency, and improving relations with Baghdad. Not many details were given on the matter of policy, which is particularly ironic when discussing transparency, which was done in a very broad way. Now, if you go to the newsletter, you can find a link to the entire 23 minutes of that talk and listen for yourself. However, not all is good with KRG. While the Prime Minister's 100-day speech went well, there was still a ton of criticism. One of the main ones being the constant delays to salaries. Baghdad sends the KRG full salaries every month on time, yet the KRG somehow manages to delay giving those salaries on time and all at once. Why? KRG won't say. Another criticism that's going on is the lack of electricity. If you recall, in the past few weeks, we've mentioned that Kurdistan went through severe power outages in which they blamed things on technical issues that were supposedly resolved. Now, however, nothing clear is being mentioned as to why the hours have gone down besides demand versus supply. Now, the whole argument of demand versus supply has been one that's been touted in Kurdistan for a long time. Basically, they say, well, in the winter, people use more electricity. And they also say this in the sp- summer, by the way. But in the winter, people use more electricity. They they turn on their heating devices, their boilers, their ACs, and all night long, they're using electricity to heat up their houses, which creates pressure on the electric centers or whatever it is that is used for the production of electricity in Kurdistan. Now, I would say, okay, fair enough. That's a lot of pressure on the government and on the suppliers of electricity. But we've seen this in Kurdistan for such a long time. And sometimes the supply versus demand is never a problem. And other times it is. 
Now, looking at the history, or rather, looking back at the past month, we can see that it's not simply supply versus demand. There's something more going on. But the KRG won't tell us what that is. That's the frustrating part about all of this. And the worst part is the fact that right now, the weather is getting very cold in Kurdistan. It is snowing, it is raining very heavily, and Kurdistan is a windy place, especially if you go to Slemani. If you go to the outskirts of Slemani, it's a very cold place. The problem is, not everyone has access to oil so that they can heat up their homes using oil and oil heaters. And with the electricity being so bad, people right now are going to be very cold. And the big worry is, how will people keep their homes warm for their kids, for their elderly? You know, the, the young people can, one way or another, manage through these two months, which is very cold. But the very young people and the very old people, that's who have the bigger problems here. So whatever these problems are with the electricity, they have to be resolved soon. Otherwise, it can cause further damage to the people. And right now, the morale in Kurdistan isn't exactly high. So we can't really afford that. However, this might boost your morale a little bit if you're living in the KRG. KRG pension reforms. KRG is planning to reform the pension system in Kurdistan, which is great. The Kurdish government has prepared a reform plan tackling pensions. The reform plan was sent to parliament to be voted on, and some of the points made within the plan are pretty good. And they include cutting the pensions of those people that have a salary from a position from which they were never in. Now, this is a big problem in the KRG. People with a political connection who have never held a position currently are receiving very high salaries. And that's one of the big problems in Kurdistan. That's one of the major corruption problems. The second point of the reforms are verification of those that have held high positions, be it in government or military. Now, this combined with the first point could be really great because, as I said, there are people who are receiving high pensions from the government for having done absolutely nothing or receiving salaries for positions they've never held. Combining the first point and the second point could do a lot of good because there are people who have served, whether in the military or in public, who are currently not being rightly compensated. I personally know a lot of those people and life is hard for them. It is very hard. So this is actually very positive to see. This is making me feel positive about the future of Karachi. If further reforms like this are to be implemented, life could get a lot better. The third point of the reforms is decreasing the salaries of people who've held a position but for a very limited amount of time. An example of this would be a person receiving the position of a deputy prime minister or advisor, albeit for a day or so. Basically, they won't work on the position and are just there for enough time to get the paperwork before they are retired and receive a high pension. Again, you know, all three are kind of tackling some of the same people. And if these reforms are implemented the way they are meant to, and I hope to God that they are, then things could get a lot better for a lot of pensioners in Kurdistan. I'm just worried that somehow the government and those corrupt officials are going to find a way to take advantage of this. Let's hope not. And in some more news that might boost your morale, this is a more positive episode, isn't it? <laughs> no, uh, we have Boycott Watch this week. 
We have some amazing news this week from the Boycott Watch. A recent announcement from the Trade and Commerce Ministry in KRG has revealed that in this short period, 95% of factories in Slemania and Slemani alone have started to work again. The ministry referred to the recent strengthening of communications with Baghdad as the main reason for this crest in local production. But we'll be more honest than them and say that the higher demands are taking place for local products due to the boycott on Turkish products. So yes, it seems that this boycott has just boosted the local economy in such a great way. And it is, I can't emphasize enough how great this is. This is something we've needed for years. And 95%, 95% of factories in Slimani, 95%. 95%. I love it. I love it. I'm not going to say more about it. It speaks for itself. I'm just going to move on to the next bit of news. And the next bit of news is that Erbil Hawler celebrates Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. For the first time in Kurdistan, a Christmas festival is being held in Erbil, in Hawler. The festival is currently taking place and will continue until the new year. It is filled with shows, street food, Santas, elves, and other Christmassy stuff. And if you go to the newsletter, you're going to find a link to the pictures and videos from the festival in there. Now, moving on from Christmas, we have some other news. And because this week's main stories about KRG were quite long, we've gathered up the rest in a quick fire manner. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Helly Love causes controversy after her Instagram post had the text, got a crown on my head that makes boys bow down. Now, we got to talk about Helly Love because she released her music video this week. And the, the image that she posted on Instagram was from that music video. When she first came on the scene, I was, I, I, I really didn't have an opinion. On the one hand, it was really great to see a Kurdish woman so empowered. That is always wonderful to see. On the other hand, I had my doubts because her music video, her song itself, and her history was a little odd. So her history was that she tried to make it in Finland as an artist, as a pop artist, I believe, and she failed. So she came back to Kurdistan and she make she makes it back home which is fair enough i mean there are a lot of artists who aren't particularly successful in one part of the world but are in other parts of the world that's fair enough i'm glad it worked out for her however the problem for me mainly was in the way she presents herself and the music video so in the music video the first music video she does she she presents this picture of this, I want to say empowered, but it's not really empowered woman. And throughout the next music video, she tries to emulate that. She tries to continue and build upon that. The problem with that is she's not really understanding the implications of her actions. She's not understanding, or maybe she doesn't, just doesn't care. I don't know. But she's not really understanding that her actions have consequences. She presents herself as a feminist who works for feminist ideals, and that is something she's not. What she does causes more dislike for feminism in Kurdistan, which is something that is sorely needed. We need feminism 
very, very, very badly. And the way she presents feminism, which is, for example, in this Instagram post, got a crown on my head that makes boys want to bow down, is just going to cause more rift between those people working towards the feminist ideals in Kurdistan and empowering women in Kurdistan, and the misogynistic patriarchal people who are putting women and feminism down. Furthermore, she's a representative of so much that's wrong with a system that is hurting Kurdistan. And she's acting like she is a role model for young people. Which is great. Again, if she was what she claimed to be, which is an empowered woman making it in Kurdistan, in a world of men, then wonderful. That is a wonderful person and role model for young people in Kurdistan. But that's not what she is. She's a person who idealizes making money. Which, you know, make money, live your life, have a good life, that's great. But don't make it seem like it's the only thing that matters. And that's what she's doing. She puts a bad face on feminism. She's actually impeding the progress of feminism in Kurdistan. And furthermore, she is doing such a disservice to Kurdish culture. Her music videos, which, you know, sprinkles in Kurdish elements, is not very different from an Orientalist approach. An Orientalist who you know, sees all of the Middle East as one large continuum of cultures that, you know, really isn't very distinctive other than, you know, small changes or differences between this part of the Middle East and that part of the Middle East. That's how she's presenting Kurdish culture, as being no different from the rest of the Middle East. If she really wanted to celebrate Kurdish culture, if she really wanted to present Kurdish culture to the world... She should actually do her job, but she's not. She's taking the easy route and acting like she's this wonderful, successful, talented artist who's come to save Kurdistan from its ways, or come to save Kurdish women, which, you know, she's not doing. She's harming Kurds in more ways than she knows, or maybe she does know and just doesn't give a fuck. I don't know. But genuinely, Heli Love is not what she claims to be. And whether she realizes it or not, she's harming Kurdistan. I'm just going to move on from this. I'm... So, <laughs> if you haven't realized by now, every week on the, on the podcast, I have at least one rant. And I've, I've, I haven't said anything uh, on social media regarding Heli Love so this was all just staying in me. I was like, I'm going to save it for the podcast. I'm going to try to be respectful about it. And I hope I was respectful about it. And I'm going to talk about it the way I see it and the way my friends who've, who, with whom I have talked to see it. And that was generally our point of view. So I hope, you know, if you guys disagree or if you have anything to add to that, you can always reach out to us on Instagram or on our email. All right, moving on. Continuing with the quickfire rounds, uh, Kurdistan has a problem of handing out brown rice, which, according to some, is so bad, it isn't even fit to feed animals. Yeah, the, the, the problem of bad quality food in Kurdistan has been a problem for a long time, and uh, yeah, it seems like it's continuing. But 
under the reforms that the new government is planning, perhaps these this will be less of a problem. I am genu- I genuinely, for the first time in a long time, have some kind of optimism about Kurdish governance and KRG. I hope I'm not wrong. I hope I'm not wrong. I mean, that optimism is only, you know only due to local policy, not foreign. But again, I hope I'm not wrong. So the third point on the quick uh, fire round is Kurdish philosophical writer Muhammad Amin Ahmad passed away this week. He was known for his many literary pieces, with one of his most famous being the book It Can Be and Cannot Be. Abi Unabi. May he rest in peace. That was all the news from KRG. And now moving on to Bakur, North Kurdistan, Turkey. There were more arrests. Last week we talked about how officials from the HDP were arrested by the Turkish regime. And this week this has continued as yet more HDP party Kurdish officials, this time from the province of Mardin, were taken to prison. And once again, it was on charges of quote-unquote terrorism, which is unfounded. So far, democratic Turkey has removed 24 of the 65 democratically elected HDP officials and replaced them all with AKP politicians. And the AKP is Erdogan's party. So, yeah. Erdogan's a dictator. Come on, this is clear. Let's just move on. This week from Rojhalat, Iranian Kurdistan, a report came out from the Hangau Organization for Human Rights. The report that came out this past week revealed the truth about the state of Kurds in Iran under the Islamic regime. And it is not, it is not as rosy as the regime likes to, likes to make it sound like. So the report claims that 46 individuals were executed in the past 11 months. Over 3,000 people have been arrested. 234 Kolbars were killed and or injured. For those of you who don't know, Kolbars are Kurds who transport goods between East and South Kurdistan, around Iraq, by carrying them on their backs through the mountainous border region. And they are frequent targets for the Iranian guards. And also, 143 individuals were sentenced to prison, lashing, and or death due to political, social, civil, or religious activities. Now we know this uh, from before. We talked about it a couple weeks back regarding how Kurdish activists and politicians are actively targeted and killed and murdered and imprisoned and tortured and so on and so forth. Our witness from Roshalat said the same thing, that their lives aren't as important as the lives of Persians. And the report seems to back that up in a large way. If you'd like to read the rest of the report, again, you can go to the newsletter. And from there, there is a link leading to the report itself. Now, the report was originally in Persian, and it has been translated by the Kurdish Instagram page, Kurdistani People, who has been very active throughout this entire invasion of Rojava, and now they're also shedding light on Rojalat. Now, moving on to some international and non-region-specific news. U.S. Senate quietly recognizes the Armenian genocide. Kurds approve, but Turkey does not. After major blocks from the senators and U.S. president alike, 
the U.S. Senate finally managed to recognize the Armenian genocide. The senators that had previously blocked this bill didn't hide their reasons, saying that it would hurt their relations with Turkey. This time, however, Republican Senator Ted Cruz pushed on for this bill without much media awareness until afterward, when it had already passed. Some of you might say, guys, this is great and all, but what does this have to do with Kurdistan? Shouldn't this be on what happened last week international instead? Which, by the way, if you haven't already subscribed, please do so. It is a great breakdown of world events, and you will be shocked at times by how much you've missed. What happened last week international is curated by Shamjav, who is a wonderful, award-winning journalist. And you will be much more informed about the world if you read that newsletter. Like before, if you go to our newsletter, there's a link to it in there. So, anyways, here's why we're mentioning this. Turkey, both in the past and present has managed to enforce international silence on their atrocities through diplomatic, economical, financial, and military pressure on the international stage. An example would be what happened to Kurds recently in Syria. We heard time and time again that Turkey was a NATO ally. This NATO ally so far has got away with massacres, invasions, aiding of radical Islamic groups, arresting journalists, suppressing minorities, and much, much more. This, however, helps break the silence with Senator Robert Menendez saying America's non-response to the Turkish horrors established patterns that would be repeated. It was also clear that Turkey itself was furious with the decision, while Kurdish SDF leader General Muslim Abdi Kobani praised the decision, saying that the U.S. showed that in the 21st century, Turkey cannot invade and commit genocide against the Kurds. And while we're talking about it, let's just mention that, that to add to the woes of the fractured Turco-US relations, Turkish FM Çavuşoglu claimed that the Interlik Air Base might come on the table if American sanctions on Turkey are indeed approved. And Erdogan further nailed this point home by reiterating what the FM said, and added that the Kuracik radar station, which NATO uses for detection of ballistic missile attacks, could also be closed down in retaliation to U.S. policy. So it really seems like Turkey is ruining their own image on the international stage with politicians, but also with artists and civilian populations as well. This week, a Kurdish artist canceled his concert in Turkey. Prominent Kurdish artist Shahram Nazari, who is accredited with being the first person to incorporate Rumi's poetries into Kurdish and Persian music, has canceled his concert in Konya, Turkey which is a concert he performs yearly to commemorate Rumi, who is buried in Konya. He said he cancelled the concert as an act of solidarity with his Kurdish people in Rojava, and because Molana Rumi was the harbinger of human consciousness, who called for peace and friendship throughout the world. And keeping up with the negative news about Turkey? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, keeping up with the negative news about Turkey... Turkey illegally extradites and sentences Kurds. Yeah, that's that's a hard that's a hard headline. Contrary to international law, Turkey has now sentenced at least 7 Syrian Kurds, 3 with life sentences, as they were illegally extradited and sentenced. Reports claim that the Turkish army is arresting Kurds in occupied parts of Rojava and bringing them back to Turkey to be tried for membership in a terrorist organization. Mind you, these are not Turkish citizens, nor do they work, live, or operate in Turkey. So what is being done here is illegal in all kinds of ways. 
and just it feels like the news about Erdogan in Turkey is almost unending at this point. But Erdogan said this week that he's unsatisfied with the US and Russia. He claimed that the US and Russia have done an inefficient job of clearing out, and I'm quoting here, YPG PKK terrorists from northern Syria. This kind of rhetoric perhaps will be used to make way for a continuation of the operation in Syria, but that remains to be seen. Erdogan talks a lot, man. He talks a lot. Like, this week he even said that he would refuse a Nobel Peace Prize if he was offered, like, if he was, if he won. Who would give him a Nobel Peace Prize? Seriously. I mean, I get it. The Nobel Peace Prize can be very political and all. I mean, Obama won it and he killed a whole lot of people civilian populations with drones and stuff. And, you know, he deported a whole lot of people as well. So, yeah, it can be political. But, come on, Erdogan, really? (laughs) No, no. He's never gonna win it. There's a Kurdish saying, it says, And, you know, translated, it means, the fox can't reach the, the grapes. So he says, it's too sour. Basically saying, ah, it's too sour. I don't want it. That's <laughs> that's Erdogan right now. He can't he can't even get it, so he's complaining about it. Anyways, we're gonna end the part about news on a positive note. Actually, Kurdish journalist Rojin Farho, who is in her last year of studying journalism in the Erasmus High School, won a prize for her work, and she, alongside other recipients, was honored by King Philip of Belgium in the royal palace. Anyways, that is all the news for this week regarding Kurdistan. In the next part, we're going to listen to an interview with Nadine Baryar, a Kurdish activist. With me on the phone today is Nadine Barriar. Nadine is a Kurdish activist and she's been very busy lately, as recently she gave a presentation at Harvard and hosted a Kurdish film festival in New York. Hi Nadine, welcome to the podcast. Hi Joe, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. So before we get into any of the nitty gritty, I just want to ask you, from an activist, what is your definition of, of activism? Because Nowadays, in this age of social media, sometimes it gets confused for being a keyboard warrior or a social justice warrior. So what is activism to you? Uh, yeah, so I think, <laughs> that's a good question. I think it's important that we touch up on that. Um, yeah. You know, it's like I hate going into spaces and defining myself as an activist because it's been reduced to like such a joke nowadays. But um, yeah. so an activist is and ought to be someone that not only has a theory of, uh, you know, a center of core beliefs that they hold, but someone that moves forward, like moves forward to bridge that theory with practice. So it's not just um, going online and tweeting and arguing with randoms um, on Twitter. That's kind of like pseudo activism. You're not really doing anything to help people. Um, you really have to ask yourself, is what you're doing effective is what you're doing actually genuinely helping empower a marginalized group of people or are you just doing this for your ego-centered or ego-driven work um so it's it's twofold first you have to bridge your theory with practice and then additionally you have to make sure that you're approaching your work from a lens that uh you know rids yourself of your ego and of um you know kind of approaching the topic from like a, a savior standpoint if that makes sense yeah that makes total sense and you have been 
bridging your, your core beliefs with practice. You've been working on a project to provide solar panels for Yazidi people. You want to tell us about that? So <clears throat> the first initial trip I did, um, I took over supplies to displaced uh, Yazidis uh, near Duhok and Sinjar. And uh, now the second place, uh, the second trip I'm doing, I the first trip was was good and it helped, uh, you know, provide supplies to these people. But I wanted to have something that was sustainable even after I left. Um, and so I think one of the best ways to do that was to intertwine, uh, you know, eco uh, eco. Uh, what is it called? <laughs> Forgot the word. Crap. <laughs> eco. Um, um, eco you know what? Um, yeah, bridging it with like sustainable <laughs> ecological solutions. There we go. There we go. Yeah, we cut go. that part out. <laughs> <laughs> with like um, also the empowerment of displaced refugees. So I figured the best way to approach that was by installing solar panels. So there's this education center that has been built in Sinjar and uh, near Duhok. And it's strictly just for the displaced Yazidis. And it's a school that is like for the children that are there in addition to like just a community center. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, providing solar panels to an entire village was not realistic just because of the funds that it would require. And I just didn't have the networking and means to do that. So uh, we decided to help power two education centers. And with that, uh, it takes about $10,500 right now, and we're at $3,500, so we're not quite there yet, but we're, you know, working our way towards there. It's making progress. Yeah, we're making progress, definitely. And um, the solar panels are going to be shipped in from Suleimani, so it was the most effective way to bring the solar panels in, because usually when you try to bring them in from other places, they're used by, you know, exploitation of, like, yeah. people in Western Africa. So it, I was just, it, you know, the, figured the best way to be, like, ethical about it was to bring it over from Suleimani. So you're, you're in, with one project, you're helping boost the economy in a small way and also helping a community get power. That's yeah. wonderful. That's really wonderful. So I want to know uh, what it was that made you want to help that part of the community. So because there are a lot of communities in Kurdistan and in the Middle East in general which uh which are lacking in resources, but you chose the Yazidis. Why was that? Uh yeah, so through my school um it was and I'm going to give you a background story. I promise this is relevant. But right. <laughs> uh through my school <laughs> we did this trip to Israel Palestine and the school offered me money to film a documentary on Palestinian activists and that was really fun. And um, so my work isn't just restricted to the UZ community, but as I applied for grants to go help, you know, initially what I wanted to do a couple of years ago was go work with specifically women that had survived uh, domestic abuse, um, whether it's at, in, in Erbio or in Holer or in Suleimani. So I wanted to do that, but my school refused to give me funds. So I changed the project to uh, helping empower refugees. And again, they continue to deny all of my requests. Um, and that's because our, our departments are funded by um, Saudi, Turkey, and so forth. So you could imagine yeah. that anything remotely pro-Kurdish would be immediately denied. Um, and so instead, um, my dad and I always talked about what was going on, especially in the midst of the Syrian civil war and everything that was, you know, components of that, who would be affected and so forth. And um, I get I got to reading about a lot of the Yazidi people in their community, and um, I remember back when before my older sister passed away, uh, her and I had this discussion about um, the most effective way to help and, and stuff like that. And she always talked about how she wanted to um, adopt a Kurdish child and a Yazidi child because of how much you know we had both 
seemed like it was kind of a naive take at the time. You know, we're both teenagers and we're just like, this is our way of helping. This is our way of kind of going about these things. And it was funny to me because it was very naive. Um, but after my sister passed away, my family tried to uh, adopt a Yazidi girl. Her family had been um, killed in front of her by ISIS. And so it was on like the news and the media that like this child was looking for a home in Kurdistan. And so my family, we hired so many attorneys to try and do so. But eventually we were denied that request and adoption in the Middle East is essentially forbidden. So I just begin to thought of different ways I could help instead. So that's why I looked to crowdfunding to help the Yazidi community. And when I was there, uh, I met so many other uh, Yazidi people who became such close friends. And, and, you know, it's a community that has gone under attack by so many, so many different groups, whether it be ISIS, you know, historically under Arabs, under Kurds themselves. It's a, a community that has never seen peace because of their mere identity. So I figured uh, one of the ways to help would uh, be uh, focusing on their community specifically. That's really wonderful work. And you're, and uh, honestly, it's really wonderful, especially like you say yourself, the Yazidi community has not known peace for any prolonged period during their history. And uh, I see a lot of times on Twitter, uh, Kurds, our own people, and also uh, other minorities and other majorities from the Middle East really picking on Yazidis and Assyrians as well. And a big part of it, in my opinion, is just that we don't like Kurds are not educated on the on the history of 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 our ancestors with the minority. So to have a voice like you, really advocating for Yazidis, working towards a better Yazidi community, that's really really wonderful to see. No, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I think it's it's in part due to the fact that we're not educated on what's you know what our history consists of, and I think it's very yeah. sad. Uh, so I figured one way. And, you know, obviously not to take away from the disasters that Kurds have contributed to, but there were Kurds historically that did help a lot of families escape yeah. under Ottoman persecution and so forth. And I figured if, you know, that was a possibility back then, we can continue maintaining that, that you know, solidarity and, and moving forward from that. Yeah. Um, so moving uh, kind of moving on from that, I also wanted to ask you about the the film festival that you hosted in New York. Uh, I I personally, I tried to talk about it on the podcast uh, briefly, but I wasn't very, uh, I'm not very knowledgeable about that uh, particular festival. Can you tell us something about that? Absolutely. So it was the third annual Kurdish Film Festival. It was hosted mm -hmm. in Manhattan. It was really fun. Um, Azad and I hosted it together, actually. Um, and so the... Uh, festival was in dedication to uh, Haval Mazdak Ararat, who um, passed away in September. Uh, he was uh, killed, actually martyred, and he was a filmmaker and he was uh, a Kobani warrior. So what we did at the time was, uh, it was a three-day festival. The first day we listened to talks and panels that were given by, you know, uh, foreign policy anal analysts, conflict analysis, talking about the situation in uh, northeastern Syria and Rojava and just kind of giving a breakdown of uh, what it was and what was going on and uh, what the Kurds there were able to develop at the time on, in the midst of war. And then it was followed by musical performances. And then we watched um, films that were made in Rojava by these um, people that were there. So in Rojava themselves, they have their own arts and um, film festival where the kids will gather and put on plays and shows. And it's kind of just this like juxtaposition because in the midst of the Syrian war, you have these Kurds 
gathering to put on plays and to, to make art yeah. and to learn, you know, music and, you know, performance. So it was just like a little beacon of hope in the midst of a, you know, a larger disaster. So we were here in New York trying to celebrate that and trying to emulate that in a way, you know, in the midst of a disaster, in the midst of devastation, there was still hope to be uh, held on to. That's actually incredible. I didn't know uh, that the films themselves were, or at least uh, a number of them were made in Rojava. Yeah. Were they were they feature or, or uh, short films? So uh, most of them were short films, but we had two to three uh, films that were, you know, hour, 30 minutes long. Yeah. Well, and generally, was there a theme uh, to the to the films or were they very, they weren't genre specific? Well, so the themes were really centered around resistance and maintaining hope. I mean, it it, it kind of it broadcasted the not only the struggles that Kurds had endured at the time, but the ways in which they dealt with it. You know, it, it depicted women picking up AK-47s and fighting ISIS, but at the same time maintaining a beautiful friendship within like their military units and, and uh, showing the resilience that, you know, developed amongst that. So whether that be um, like a cultural critique of, of uh, Kurds as well. I mean, one film talked about um, Dung Bej, so these these singers mm. that would go around different villages singing, and uh, the Kurds in the villager in the villages would would run away and hide because they were scared that in participating in this music um, they would get in trouble because at the local mosques they were teaching that music is haram and so because of that you shouldn't be listening to music so it was a cultural critique on the Rojava it was um, or even more broadly Kurds and it was it was um, it was also I guess a display of the resistance that was taking um, place there. Yeah, and the 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 revolution of Rojava is known for how how progressive it is. So, I guess that makes sense in the in the in the grand scheme of uh, what's happening there. Yeah, and absolutely. Speaking, sorry. I said yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> um, and sort of going along that same uh, going along that same kind of theme. I want to know a little bit about, well, I see you a lot of times talking on social media and we've talked about it perhaps not too, uh, in, not too broad or not too deeply, but we've talked about it shortly. The issue that's kind of touchy for Kurds, which is sexual liberation, gender liberation. Uh, what kind of work do you do in that regard? So um, I, I don't know if I go as far as to say that I do work, but through social media, I try to be very honest in terms of sexual liberation. I do a lot of stories that explain um, how women can reclaim their anatomy um, and how it, you know, I think, where do I begin? <laughs> I think we have a lot of figures today that have this intention of empowering women, but approach it very poorly. Uh, whether that like. be through music videos, through I'm not I won't get specific, specific, but through music videos, yeah. through photo shoots, whatever that are completely ineffective and that really just kind of emulate a revolutionary aesthetic, um, that in no way at all is revolutionary, nor does it empower women. Um, and so I think one of the ways we need to do this is through education. It's through finding a medium of of taking these complex topics, whether it's feminism, internalized misogyny, how the patriarch patriarchy operates and so forth and finding a medium to make that digestible and understandable for a broader audience so through instagram stories we'll talk about um 
you know, again, the female anatomy, what it means to be a whore, how, you know, virginity is a social construct and how to go about dealing with this and how to go about even educating your own family members. Because I've had family members that are completely ignorant on this topic, you know, or um, will say, will regurgitate things that are extremely misogynic, misogynistic and, and sexist. And if I want to be someone that, you know, claims to be a feminist, you have to work internally to resolve not only your own internalized misogyny, but that within your family as well. Um, and so I think it's important. So a lot of girls will message me, um, or will call me asking how to talk to their families about going out more or having a boyfriend or engaging in, you know, healthy sex and what that means because we're not taught sex education at all. And so, you know, a consequence of that is either high STD rates, high pregnancy or like social shaming or even, um, y you know, not, I guess women are left on like unpleasured in bed. And so, you know, it's, it's providing information about like how to use condoms, the most effective birth control, how to go about using birth control if your mom and dad don't like it. Or, you know, it, it's like conversations like that that I try to tackle, which I think have helped a few women um, abroad. But, you know, I, I can't really say to how effective it is, but I, I hope it does help some people. That, it, I think that is very helpful. Um, it's, that's, that's the thing about social media. Now we finally have this gateway to which we can, uh, which we can use to really spread this information and help people who otherwise might not have a a, a way to be helped. Um, how, how do you think men, Kurdish men specifically, can help with this? Because it, it again, it is kind of a touchy topic. It is a sensitive topic. So sometimes a man can do a certain thing, which would be with the right intention, but it doesn't come across that way. In your opinion. How can Kurdish men help with this process? So, you know, I think Kurdish men are a broad spectrum. You have men that will completely attack you for just living and breathing. And you have men who will pose as activists and feminists. And then once they get emotionally involved, those feelings completely go away. <laughs> and they resort back to their patriarchal ways. Um, so I think the best way for a man to be an ally is to just recognize his place. Um, consider these questions, ask yourself, what is it that you are able to do that your sister isn't able to do? What is it that you're able to do that your, your girlfriend, that your friend that is a girl is unable to do in public? Um, questions considering the dynamics of your own interpersonal relationships amongst your family members. Uh, what does it look like for your mom and dad? How does your dad go about treating your own mother? Um, and I think recognizing, especially recognizing that human rights and women's rights and gender equality is not an entity that is specifically exclusive to the West. That that concept, that notion is completely wrong. I mean, gender equality is not something that is bound by societies and, and, and by cultures. Culture, I think people are too often mixed up with like, you know, stagnation. We are the ones who create culture. Culture does not create us. You know, culture is a construct of our own our own intellect, our own arts, our own, you know, perspective on these things. And because of that, culture is able to transform. It's not, you know, a stagnant thing. And because of that, um, I, I think it's important for Kurdish men to recognize that one, culture is something that we're able to change. Two, that you need to recognize your place and the privilege that you have as a man and because of your genitalia and the things that you're able to do, the agency that you have, whereas Kurdish women don't have. And three, listening to Kurdish women asking, you know, what's the best way to help Ex exactly what you're doing now? Uh, being supportive of Kurdish women in light of, of other men being present. And when women aren't around, hold your friends accountable to the stuff that they say. It's not just some sort of, of 
you know, pose, some act you need to put on amongst other Kurdish women. It's something that you genuinely need to believe and practice. So when your friends do say sexist things, when your friends do go about showing, you know, photos of their, you know, intimate photos of their girlfriend or something along the lines of that, you you stop that. You you recognize that this is something that, you know, men per- perpetrate and that you need to act as a force to combat that. If that makes sense. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> No, I think, uh, and I say this all the time on the podcast, in regards to some sort of feminist movement in Kurdistan, I think Kurdish culture has more hope, perhaps, than some of our neighbors, because there is relative more pro- uh, relatively more progress uh, from those uh, aspects. But hearing how it's it's a more complex process, and it's not just about, you know, as I said earlier, not being these fake or faux activists on Twitter or whatever, and understanding the the different sides to it, like understanding how, as a man, I can be an ally. It's it's really, I don't know, in, in a way it makes me feel optimistic about the future for, for uh, Kurdish culture. Definitely. I think so as to, I mean, we also encounter so many atrocities every day, whether it be women being killed for divorcing or, or, you know, myself, this is very, you know, not as large as a woman being killed in honor killing, but like posting a photo, I'll have family members call my mom and try to have them, you know, or they'll have me take the photo down. And I refuse to do that. And it's like, no, like, I'm not going to take a photo down just because my stomach is showing or because my breasts are showing, like, get over it. It's something that you're just going to have to, you know, one way it's normalizing the fact that women can have control over their bodies. And it's also recognizing that it's something that's deeply rooted in our culture, but also recognizing that we can change that culture. We have the ability to do that. Yeah. And one final question that I have, whenever I meet someone, especially if they're Kurdish, Whenever I meet a Kurdish person that I, I especially admire, I generally think, "All right, I really want to know how their parents are." So I've seen I've seen a few <laughs> I've seen a few posts about your parents on your Instagram, yeah. and they seem like really cool people. Was that like a big part of what m- sort of pushed you in this direction? Uh, so. My, gosh, it's such a big question. My family dynamics are not the typical Kurdish family household. Um, and that's because for a long time of my life, it was just my older sister and my mom living together while my dad worked overseas. Uh, and unfortunately, when I was uh, 11 and my older sister was 17, she passed away in 2011. And so my dad came back at that time. And, you know, it is what it is. Kurdish parents mourn and grieve in a different way than Western or American parents would. And so they, for a good five to six years, were completely absent in my upbringing. Uh, So I didn't have parents. I had parents that were physically there, but mentally they were not there. They were hysterical. They were unable to, you know, help raise me in that in that way. So um, because of that, I kind of was on my own. Uh, I had to find for my own. I had to, you know, pick myself up. Um, And it, it was very hard as a 12 year old, as a young child. You know, that's the most impressionable age for a young prepubescent child uh, going into high school and dealing with all these other things, identity struggles, depression and anxiety, given that my sister just had passed away and the trauma that that I had endured. So I kind of fiend for myself and, and raised myself for a long time. 
Um, and the relationship with my parents wasn't very good because they weren't existent. So there's a lot of tension at home and we constantly got into arguments because it was, you know, we didn't know each other. So they never knew what I was up to. I was never home. Um, uh, but I think it was up until when I got into college, when I got a full ride into BC, Boston College, which is like a very, you know, it's a, it's a good school here. It's, it's one of the like top 20 of our nation. And so once they realized I got into college with a full ride, they're kind of just like, okay, well, you, you didn't mess up completely. So congratulations, you're a good child. And I think they kind of use that to quantify whether or not I was a good person. Um, and so from there on, my mom and my dad sat me down and were just like, listen, for a good five to six years, you were on your own and we had no idea what you were up to. And we were absent in your life and you seem to do very well for yourself. So we trust you. And, and you know, I've assumed the responsibilities of a co-parent. So our dynamic is, is not the typical Kurdish, you know, household. We're very we're equal in that manner. They, re- they treat me as one of their equals, which is why I have so much freedom and so much agency to do what I want. Um, and I think it's important that a lot of, you know, your lifetime is spent, your mom and your dad uh, raise you, you know, it's not fun for them to teach you how to pee properly or, you know, potty train you or teach you how to use deodorant for the first time. These things are all very uncomfortable. And I think we, as you grow older in your early 20s, um, you start to notice that it's then your turn to teach your parents a couple of things that they're not able to grasp onto. You know, my parents didn't have the the privilege to go to a university, go to a college. So that's when I started teaching my, you know, my parents about gay rights and and what it means to be non-binary and, and so forth and, and so many other things. And to which my mom, you know, the other day bought a book about what it means to be transgender and gave it to my little sisters and was like, oh, this is, you know, you need to respect other people that have this. And so, so my parents are very open-minded in that, in that respect. And we've, we've fostered a very, uh, I guess, a very different home life than the typical Kurdish home life. You can't see it, but I'm smiling right now. Um, it's incredibly wonderful to hear about Kurdish parents who are open that way. Yeah, and I'm so grateful for them. Honestly, like, uh, I know how much your sister's life uh, affects you and to hear more of the story it kind of it makes me admire you even more oh that's so kind (laughs) (laughs) thank you (laughs) thank you so much Nadine for coming on the podcast and sharing a bit of your life and your wisdom and your knowledge with us and our audience thank you so much for having Um, me it's an honor it's it's really wonderful to have you on as the first guest so again thank you for coming on (laughs) thank you (laughs) bye (laughs) bye So that was Nadine Buryar. She's she's a really wonderful person, very smart, very well-spoken, very kind and sweet as well. So she's always welcome on the podcast. Anyways, that is all for this episode of the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. I am your host. I am Rajid Shouani. If you'd like to keep up with us or support us, you can go to our Instagram, WHLW under dash Kurdistan. From there, you can find links to our Patreon where you can support us. And also, you can find a link to subscribe to the newsletter. I hope you found this episode informative and enjoyable. And next time, we're going to give you more updates on Kurdistan. Until then, I hope you have a great week.